Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us today and and every week using this means, this technology that you provided that we are using uh, for fellowship with one another and fellowship with you through your precious word of truth and grace. So, Father, thank you. So many blessings are written in Scripture that we might receive your truth as it is to know how you are working today and uh, how we are, in fact, as your children, right in the center of your work, your glorious, your eternal work. So, Father, what a overwhelming blessing it is to just consider this, that you would take sinners uh, who are bound. Uh... So, Father, we just uh, look forward to see how you work. Some are suffering very greatly, and we certainly have a lot on our prayer list that uh, are still uh, in harm's way, as it were, health-wise or, or in other ways, too. Pray that uh, those in the group and members of our families as well and friends and, and all of us, Heavenly Father, from the curses that are about us everywhere, it seems, uh, whether that be COVID or other things, so our government is increasingly dictatorial. And so, Father, we just uh, pray that you would uh, protect us from these many challenges. And, Father, uh, we wouldn't forget that uh, our home is not here, but is in heaven. And it's really the voice, the call and the shout that we're listening for. That we might hear our Lord calling us forth into heaven's glory, perhaps soon, Father, uh, perhaps soon. And... uh, we know there's even a crown of righteousness awaiting. So, Father, thank you again, and uh, please bless us now as we open your word together. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, we have the privilege to continue today. Um, <laughs> I say this too much, so maybe everybody's a little bored when I say it, but... <laughs> Of course, I'm blessed the most because I have had so much opportunity here to prepare and to uh, look intently at the scripture. And most of you haven't had that opportunity due to other concerns and demands upon life, right? Um, But today, continuing the larger subject of... um, our introduction to the book of Genesis, where we see revealed the foundations of our faith. And uh, we spent, I think it was three studies, looking to see how our Lord Jesus considered Genesis to be inspired, even the earliest chapters in Genesis, and how critically important our Lord said, believing that is, in fact, uh, uh, he he went back and uh, accused the Pharisees of failing in that regard and uh, not understanding uh, really what was most important, that that as he said to them, this is amazing, but as he said to them, going all the way back to the earliest chapters in Genesis, he said, the blood of Abel crieth from the ground. And he applied that directly against the, the Pharisees and, and said, God would not forget and that he would bring judgment upon them and that nation for the blood of Abel. Well, that's interesting. It's very interesting that the Lord uh, uh, went all the way back to Genesis in uh, in his condemnation of the religious leaders of Israel, right? Because they failed to take scripture literally and to take God at his word. And he also, uh, that's in chapter 23 of Matthew, And then also in chapter 24, he speaks to the nations of this world. Um, Similarly, says, you didn't consider Noah and the great flood that was brought upon the world and why that flood was brought and uh, the significance of it. You didn't consider it. If you had, you would be worshiping me instead of idols, instead of the creation, right? Because God holds mankind accountable and will bring judgment. And this is revealed in Genesis. Um, 
And of course, um, today with the, the Bible in general and the faith of uh, our salvation under attack everywhere, we we see so many going to the heart of the matter, discounting the Bible as God's word and uh, either directly or indirectly declaring it irrelevant to life or even worse than that, considering it a an impediment to uh, free and open um, living apart from the restrictions of such a book. Wow. So many have lost so much by turning against God's word, haven't they? So we spent the last two times, uh, or was it just one? I think the, just the last one, looking at Paul's view of Genesis. Paul's view. What did the Apostle Paul think of this first book in the Bible, the book of beginnings? And what we saw was that uh, Paul's view of Genesis was a very high view indeed. In fact, uh, be continuing today and also next time looking into this. Uh, and we'll see, as we have last time in our studies here, that Paul considered Genesis to be sacred history. It was inspired and critically important because when Paul writes about the creation, going all the way back to the Genesis account by reference, when he writes about it, he immediately links that description of the creation to our salvation. That's most remarkable. And we went to Colossians 1 to see this. I'll just read a couple of verses there. In Colossians 1, I'll read from verses 14 through 18, just uh, to remind you of what we were looking at last time. He says, we've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom, verse 14, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him, that is through Christ himself, pre-incarnate Christ, for the son of God, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, hold together, right? The whole of creation holds together in Christ, right? And by his power. And then amazingly, right after all of that, he says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that Paul ties the creation account and that Christ himself is the creator. Then you don't know that. They think God the Father did the creation. Well, he was involved, certainly, but Christ was the direct, immediate force producing everything, speaking it into existence, okay? as said there in Colossians chapter 1. And then immediately, and he is the head of the body, the church. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So Paul ties the whole redemptive reality of our salvation by grace directly back to the creation. Now, why does he do that? Because in his mind, they all go together directly, right? You can't deny the truths in Genesis without being on very thin ice regarding <laughs> the truths of redemption, it turns out. And we're going to see that revealed so clearly today as we look uh, further into this by going to Romans chapter 5. Probably the greatest theological uh, teaching in the whole Bible is in Romans chapter 5, and we'll look at that today. Also, in Hebrews, <clears throat> and I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but uh, in Hebrews it's stated similarly 
it says here only here the author is writing about the written revelation and the declaration to us by the son of god the living word and then the written word so he says he hath in these days spoken to us by a son previously through the prophets right but now through a son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world for the ages, right? So the pre-incarnate Christ made it all, right? Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, just like in Colossians, same, same statement, right? And then when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, the two are connected directly in Paul's mind. So there's no question that Paul believed Genesis was a, an accurate, really a perfect record of history, starting at the beginning. Last time we looked at what Paul reveals uh, of heavenly history before this was all created even before that we went to philippians 2 to see that uh, to see exactly what the plan of god was for the whole thing and how then christ said i'm ready to go i'm ready to do it he had already at that point created uh, all things and much time had passed, thousands of years, but then the time, the appointed time, came for him to enter into humanity. To be conceived in Mary's womb, miraculously, and then ultimately to be born. Um, without sin, but fully possessing humanity. So we've seen that already. So now today, <clears throat> what I'd like us to look at and I'd like to begin by saying that there are a number of teachings in Scripture that we no doubt have considered to be extremely difficult to understand. Uh, and I would say that since Scripture was controlled, the writing of it was controlled by the Holy Spirit, so all the right words were chosen, the right statements were made. So if we believe that, that God gave the revelation, then the revelation itself is perfect. So if its teachings are somehow still hidden to us, it must not be a problem in the word. It's a problem somewhere else, right? <laughs> and I've always believed, and um, you've heard me say this many times, that if we just compare scripture with scripture, do it very carefully, slowly, as needed, rightly dividing the word of truth, then uh, the blindness is removed and we understand what we did not and could not understand before. And uh, I think we'll see that today. My purpose in going to Romans 5 isn't really to explain difficult doctrines, because I don't consider them to be difficult. If there's a difficulty, it's with me. <laughs> or you it's not with the doctrine it's not with the teaching right the teaching is simplicity itself if only we would have a clear view of it right you know uh, recently i was driving somewhere and uh, uh patty wasn't with me and i went over this this mountain and uh, just a big hill new hampshire everything's a hill except for the really you know um all of a sudden completely fog bound Right. You couldn't see anything. You know, the visibility is like 50 feet. All the, you have to come to a 20, 20 mile an hour speed. Right. Not knowing what's ahead of you there. Uh, and then immediately the sun was shining and it was so beautiful. When the fog was displaced, I could see again. Right. And that's the problem we have here. I also have cataracts need to be corrected. So get that out of the way. We'll be able to see much more clearly. So this morning. My intention isn't to somehow explain what might seem to you to be complicated, difficult teaching in Romans chapter 5, because it isn't complicated, difficult teaching. What I hope you will see is how simple everything 
really is. Because what we find in Romans 5, more than much more than anywhere else in Scripture, is the Pauline teaching on what is generally called federal headship. Federal, federal headship. Um, why is that word chosen? Because it's all about legacy. It's all about legacy. It's all about someone who's authoritative passing on to others, maybe to all, in the case of Adam and his sin, but passing on because of one, one's acts, one's statements, one's edicts. And we see this in our government today, right? How greatly the words of the president may affect all of life here, right? In our nation or in the world. Um, that's in our country, it's a federal system. It's a federal headship. The federal government has powers that the states and the people have granted to it. They're limited in this case, right? And laws describe those principles of operation, don't they? So in our world, it's the laws that determine the legacies related, for example, to inheritance. So there are inheritance laws. Each state's different to some degree. Um, if there's no will, then your, your, your assets are sitting there sort of in a uh, escrow account, as it were, right? Just waiting to be distributed to however the court works it out. If there's a will, that's a legal document, right? And that determines a lot about uh, what your heirs will inherit. But they have a legacy because of those legal principles. And, it, and that's what we're talking about here. It's the issue of legacy. And what Paul's writing about in Romans 5 is about the legacy the twofold legacy that comes to humanity, first of all, through Adam, and secondly, through Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. If you think about legacy and inheritance and so forth, I mean, you don't inherit because you were a good person or because you were righteous and your brother or sister wasn't. It's whatever is determined in the will. It's whatever your your uh, your parents decided right it just comes upon you it's not according to your own will that it comes upon you it's according to their will <laughs> that it comes upon you it's an issue of legacy the rules and principles that govern that uh, whether in this world system or whether spiritually as god the father sees it right uh, that's what determines our legacy well how did god see adam is the question. And then how did he see Christ? So it's a seven-point outline, really. Uh, don't try to write it down. It'll be kind of difficult because I have too many words here. But first of all, our hope depends on justification, which is gained through faith. That's the first five verses of uh, Romans 5. Then our justification depends on Christ's shed blood. The next verses in Romans 5. Then you see all this logic was logical. One depends upon the other. Then through his blood sacrifice, our reconciliation was accomplished. Then Paul addresses Adam's heritage and the legacy of all of humanity. And what he says is that Adam's legacy is undeniable for sin and death reign. Sin and death reign in this world. Who can deny it? For Paul, that's absolutely critical to understanding the next part, which is what Christ's heritage is. His legacy to all that by faith, believe, right, that grace might reign. So death reigns upon all men. Grace reigns upon all that have believed. That's Paul's teaching. It's really that simple here in Romans chapter 5. And then he writes that grace reigns through Christ's righteousness even more than Adam's sin. That's a remarkable statement even more, and twice he uses that language. Uh, 
And then finally, there's a central point being addressed in the entire chapter five of Romans, and that has to do with our personal resurrection and that that has been assured through Christ's death and his resurrection to all that have believed. It's not that only we will be resurrected and and no one else. That's not true. And the Bible teaches that all will be resurrected, right? It's that our resurrection is different from theirs. Our resurrection is unto eternal life and uh, eternal presence in the very uh, uh, intimate fellowship that God offered through his son. So those are the seven things that I want us to look at because each section of Romans deals with one of those. And then finally, at the end, we go to 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so let's um, jump into this. Let's leap into it and see how simple it all is in the end. So the federal headship doctrine, which is what we're talking about here, what legacies there are, whether through Adam to all men or through Christ to those that have believed, right? It's all founded ultimately on Genesis and the account there. You take Genesis away and its literal understanding as sacred history and everything collapses. So in the seminaries today where largely Genesis is being minimized or, or, or contradicted. Um, what's left then? If you take Genesis out of the Bible, Paul would say, then we have no place to stand, okay? Because everything goes back to there. If we can't go back to Adam and see what the consequence was of his sin, then how can we understand Christ and his righteousness and the imputation of that, the counting of that, to us individually, that we might be blessed as Christ uh, intended. That was his whole reason for leaving, leaving heaven's glory, you see, to create a people uh, to fellowship with for all eternity, right? So that's where we stand. So first of all, our hope, our hope depends on justification, which is gained through Faith. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And I've handed out here a, a little aid to our understanding, uh, which we're not actually to yet, but, and the rest that have been listened in, you can go on, on libertymessenger.org and get this later today after I, I put it out there. This little chart shows so well uh, Paul's teaching and some of the critical verses we'll look at here in a moment. But um, first of all, Paul writes about something very practical. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, and uh, let me rather ask uh, that to be read by Charlie. If you just read Charlie verses 1 through 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience, experience, and experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Thank you, Charlie. So interesting, isn't it, that uh, he's talking about practical experience, what we face in life, because we still bear the effects of Adam in our physical constitution, right? And and so death comes, and along with that, lots of trials and tribulations. That's just a fact. Okay. He says, we're not going to deny that fact. That's That's reality. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have hope through all of this, knowing that it is God who is working out his love. You see verse 7? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given unto us. So in all of this life, believers, and Paul's writing to believers here, of course, unbelievers do not have any way to comprehend these scriptures. They don't relate. But believers... 
Paul says, should know that God is working out his love in and through us, uh, even through all of these trials, because uh, what he's doing is giving us a hope that endures everything that will come to us in this life. And that hope will endure into eternity, right? Those who do, do not have faith, do not take God at his word, are not justified, and they have no real hope in this world. Paul, Paul wrote uh, in Ephesians 2.12 about that. He said, uh, at, at that time, he says, meaning before you were saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8, right? Uh, before that, he says, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. That's a sad statement of where humanity is, apart from Christ, without hope. There's a lot of hope so, and there's a lot of ways to get that. And Satan has many religious systems available for providing it. And our own nature seeks, you know, uh, to justify ourselves. Many believe in God, but their, their God is not the God of, of Scripture, right? And not our God either. But they're justifying themselves before the one whom they assume will be willing to receive them because of their good works and because of their own righteousness, where, of course, that's truly impossible. So Paul begins here with this very practical statement about life and how God is working things out in life. But he says, having been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else in this chapter is meant to underscore this and how our hope really should endure everything, right? Um, we should never allow any other thought to take its place, that we'd be overwhelmed by the circumstances that may be very difficult indeed to come our way. The rest of the chapter is all about that. He's going to write in such a way that uh, believers who read these verses and take God at his word might have a clear view of um, what our eternal redemption is all about. And that this federal headship doctrine is right in the center of it. Okay, now the second point is that our justification depends on Christ's shed blood, because in the next verses, uh, Paul immediately refers to the shed blood of Christ, right? So, Lisa, can you read Romans 5, verses 6 through 9? When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Yes, so really, uh, three times he says much more here. <laughs> wow, just amazing. Uh, much more than. Okay, so this is a transitional section. What Paul is saying is that Believers need to understand that it was the shed blood of Christ that ultimately led to our justification, right? And we'll be saved from wrath through him, through the resurrected Lord, right? Again, he mentions love in verse 8. God commendeth his love for us. The greatest expression of love that's ever been made is that of Christ himself, right? Leaving heaven's glory to come and ultimately to die bearing the sins of the world upon himself and then being gloriously raised, having paid the full penalty for them. Okay, so that, that verse explains something about how it is actually the sacrifice of Christ that was required, right? His blood needed to be shed. That was part of the divine plan from eternity past, and Christ came in the world, under the world, basically, to seem strange. He'd come into the world for this purpose, but he came into the world to redeem us for all eternity, but 
the plan required that he offer himself as our sacrifice. And not for us alone, Paul says, but for the whole world. Okay. So Adam's one act of rebellion brought sin upon the world, and Christ's one act of righteousness brings justification to those that have believed. So one many relationship. And there are two men singled out, Adam and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to verses 10 through 11, we see that even our reconciliation was accomplished through Christ's blood sacrifice. And then we'll see how this all goes right back to Genesis, uh, which is the main thing I want to focus on here. So, Verses 10 and 11, Patty, would you please read those for us? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. All right. Uh, so what is he saying? He's saying we were sinners when this was all accomplished. Well, we weren't even born. You realize that, right? When Christ died. And yet Paul writes about it as if it's sort of in the present tense, or actually slightly in the past. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. Um, we were all in the mind of God already, you see. So when Christ died on the cross, he was actually taking the sin of the world, and that included your sins and mine, on himself at that very time, right? Bearing them in his own body and dying on our behalf. It's as if we died for our own sins in him, in other words, okay? Hmm. Interesting, huh? Um, and it happened while while we were enemies. Well, if that's true, even while we were enemies, that the love of God was great enough to accomplish all of this for us, right? Then now we're not enemies. And so just imagine, that's why it's much more, much more. <laughs> we shall be saved by his life. Or really, as Paul writes in other places in Romans, through his living in us, his resurrection life, he dwells within us, in other words. And the life that we live, it's his life, right? And so that's why it's, he writes much, much more there, and therefore we should rejoice. Just rejoice. Are you rejoicing yet? Let's Rejoice. If we haven't been rejoicing properly, now's the time, right? Understanding all of this, right? Okay, now the fourth part gets to the very heart of the teaching, and that's that the federal headship doctrine is founded on the Genesis account, and Adam's legacy of sin is undeniable, right? Because the wages of sin is death, right? Oh, if the wages of sin is death, then all must die, right? If Adam's sin is passed on to all, and that's what he says actually occurred. So for the reading of that, Linda, verses uh, 12 through 14 of Romans 5. Linda? Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had sinned not after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Okay, this is the part that I think when we read it, we, we immediately start to wonder, oh, this is some deep teaching. Can I understand it, right? I, I remember reading this from time to time many, many years ago. And when I got to it, I just kind of was like, okay, I got to get past this. 
on to the next section quickly because, whoa, uh, what's this teaching all about? And it turns out to be very simple, <laughs> very simple. The question is, why does everyone die? Well, we, we know it's because of sin, okay, because he says the wages of sin is, is death, right? But but what sin? Don't we normally think that, oh, we're talking about personal acts of sin? But that's not what he says here. When there was no law, so look before the law was given, right? There was death for thousands of years before the law was given, right? So sin was in the world. But it says it wasn't counted then because there was no law, right? So they weren't sinning, rather they weren't dying because of their personal acts of sin. They were dying because of Adam's act of sin. And that's the whole point here, the federal headship. Adam had his heirs, as it were, and what they inherited was his sin and the condemnation and the guilt of it. That's so simple. If you just take it sentence and phrase by phrase, okay? So what he's saying is that no one can deny Adam's sin and its effect on all because all died, and even before the law was given. Now, once the law was given, the law condemned <laughs> those that broke it, right? So they willingly, they willingly rebelled against God and his rule, right? But before the rule had been given, there was no, he says, no imputation of sin from these personal acts, but it was rather what happened way back at the beginning in Adam's, in Adam's one act of disobedience. That's critical to see here. What was Adam's one act of disobedience? You remember? He took of the fruit, right? He knew God had told him, the day that you partake of that fruit, you shall die. And in the Hebrew, it's it's the strongest possible statement about death. Dying, you shall die. In fact, there were three degrees of that. There's, there's uh, in, 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 in one's constitution, death would now begin to operate, right? Secondly, spiritual death, separation from God. He was driven out of the garden, right? And thirdly, eternal death would come. Three degrees of death. Dying, you shall die, Adam, in the day that you partake of that fruit, right? So it was Adam's one act of sin, willful rebellion, that brought death upon all of his uh, offspring, all the way down to the current day. Now, what Paul is going to do is to contrast that with Christ's one act of righteousness. Oh, this is wonderful. And I put in the handout there uh, a table that uh, is found in Thomas Constable's great commentary on Romans. In fact, it's a great commentary in the entire Bible, but the section on Romans has this table which I've included in the um, the handout, and it'll be online at Liberty Messenger uh, by the end of the day. And what it has are the seven comparisons and contrasts found here in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. There are seven, okay? First of all, there are two men, Adam and Christ. Secondly, there are, as you go through these verses, which we're now going to read, uh, but uh, um, as we go through them, if you look at it carefully, you see there are two men mentioned, Adam and Christ. There are two acts mentioned. One is a trespass in the garden by Adam. The other is a righteous act on the cross. So two acts. Then there are two results. The result of Adam's sin is condemnation, guilt, and death, right? The result of Christ's act of obedience is justification, life, and kingship. <laughs> then there are two differences. First of all, in degree, sin abounded from Adam's rebellion and sin. Grace superabounds through Christ's act of righteousness. 
than two differences in operation. One sin by Adam resulted in condemnation and the reign of death for all, for all of humanity. And on the other side, many sins on Christ resulted in justification and reigning in life for believers. And there are two kings or two domains of uh, of, of uh, two realms of, of living. First of all, sin reigning through death came through Adam and grace reigning through righteousness came through Jesus Christ, right? Then two abundances. He doesn't mention the abundance from Adam, except that he's already said over and over, sin reigns. It's abundant. Everybody knows it. Who can deny it? But then on the other side, abundance of grace. Verse 17, and of the gift of righteousness. And then finally, two contrasting states. One is that the condemned are slaves of sin through Adam on the one side, and then on the other, the justified may reign in life by Christ. So there are seven different aspects of this listed. They all fit together so perfectly. Let's read these verses. And uh, Gail, I've asked you to read these. And this is, these verses have the great, the most powerful teaching on uh, the subject of what is the essence of our redemption that are found anywhere in scripture. So Gail, verses 15 through 19. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Thank you, Gail. Okay, now, because of the ones and the manys and the alls and so forth, um, this becomes, in our minds at least, much much more difficult. Okay? But Paul has to avoid the teaching or the appearance of teaching of universal reconciliation. He has to avoid it. And he does that in the way that he uses the words all and many here in this section. So what is clear? What is clear is that there are two kinds of federal headship. One goes back to Adam and one goes back to Jesus Christ, right? And they have totally different consequences, but there are similarities in the operation of this, right? And that's why, because of the similarities and then the differences, he uses language like uh, in uh, verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. I used to read these words and I say, oh, my God. In seminary, we had to translate this from the Greek, and it was uh, more than a translation activity. It was sort of like a, a, a struggle. Will we understand it or not? Right? <laughs> um, and uh, in those days, I didn't really, but uh, later, much better. Okay, well, so the similarities are there, but then the differences. It's all revealed right there. Seven contrasts and similarities are listed. Two men, two acts, two results, two differences, two kings with their realms of authority, two abundances, and two contrasting conditions or state. That's the heart of Paul's teaching. The subject is really, ultimately, whether God sees a man as in Adam or in Christ. Okay? 
if you're in Christ, you're no longer in Adam. You're no longer in that federal realm. You're in a different one altogether. This makes all of the difference. So what Paul is saying is that if we don't go back to Genesis and see Adam and the consequence of his sin on all humanity, we can't understand what's been accomplished through Jesus Christ. It's God's prerogative. It was his prerogative to bring sin and death upon all, was it not? If it wasn't, then our whole redemption evaporates into meaninglessness, right? So it was God's prerogative. He created Adam. He had the prerogative to ordain what Adam's life would be and what the consequence would be of Adam's sin, did he not? And that it would pass on to all, right? Well, then he has the prerogative also regarding Jesus Christ. Oh, my. That's an amazing teaching, isn't it? Um, that God can, through Christ's act of obedience on the cross, impute his righteous act to all of us the way previously Adam's righteous, unrighteous act had been imputed to all of mankind. So our entire salvation is dependent on the Genesis account in Paul's mind. You see that? Uh, that's not all. He's not done yet. If you go to other places where Paul in Romans or I'm just going to read from 1 Corinthians. But I want first for Anne to read this wonderful statement. It's just two verses about how Christ's righteousness reigns, R-E-I-G-N, reigns more than Adam's sin. Now, everybody knows how much Adam's sin reigns, right? Death upon all, right? That's the degree to which Adam's sin reigns. Who can deny this, right? But then he boldly says, based upon the teaching he's just given here, that grace reigns even more than that, okay? And we as believers should know this, and if we don't, we need to enter into the fullness of that teaching. So, Anne, would you read for us, please, Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, my. So, three times, verse 9, verse 17, and then verse 20, we see the words much more. <laughs> and I think you should all be encouraged. I know I am. When we see around us the consequence of sin and death, you read history, world history, whatever you want. You, you hear the news. You see how sin abounds unto death, right? But then he says, much more. Might grace abound through, through righteousness. What? Christ's one act of righteousness unto eternal life. So if this were not true, that it really was much more, then God didn't pick the perfect plan, did he? <laughs> but he did. Uh, he picked the perfect plan when he entered into the creative mode and ultimately creative Adam, Adam with a free will. He had a perfectly free will in the Garden of Eden, and so did Eve, right? Much more grace abounds. And uh, this even is the basis, it turns out, this federal headship through Christ and his one work of righteousness in sacrificing himself for our sin. It even is at the foundation of our hope of personal 
resurrection. And I'm just reading the words here. You'll see it clearly. And I think we'll try to look at it again next time, but we'll see how it goes. First Corinthians 15 verses 45 through 49. And so it is written. He just can't help but mention Adam by name. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening or a life-giving spirit. Nevertheless, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterwards, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So even our hope of resurrection personally, meaning not just being brought back to life from the dead, but back to abundant life in Christ and fellowship with the Lord God for eternity. That whole hope of that resurrection is based on ultimately how God had the prerogative through Adam to bring death on all. And he similarly has the prerogative through Jesus Christ to bring life to us who have believed. Now, that's a wonderful teaching, isn't it? And you see how simple it is. Comparisons and contrasts on seven different points, right? All in just a few verses of Romans chapter 5. Now, I know you all can't wait to sit down with your friends to do a Bible study on Romans chapter 5, right? <laughs> oh, my. <clears throat> uh, I want to read just a couple of verses out of Galatians 2, 2 in clothing, closing, um, verses 19 through 21, just because <laughs> Paul revels in the truth of grace, contrasting it all with the law, right? which just brings, what, the knowledge of sin, right? <laughs> but uh, the good news of grace brings life and peace. So he says, in Galatians 2.19, I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate, frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So those that place themselves back under a law are short-circuiting the working of grace through Jesus Christ. What a sad, sad thing. Indeed, that, that is. And we all have the nature of sin that leads us to realms of self-justification all vain of course right uh, what a blessing it is to have the truth of God and to see how even in the first chapters of Genesis God is laying down fundamental principles that are for our understanding and ultimately for our joy because when we see the plan of God laid out as it's is written there in the very beginning of that chapter, right? Where he says, uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can rest. We can rejoice. And we can be a light to those still in the darkness. Through grace working, right? Grace is the most powerful thing in the world today. Don't forget it. It really is. And the gospel of grace, the good news of grace, is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Wow. Well, you know how much I've been blessed by this study. I hope you have been too. And uh, 
just wondering, uh, oh, Lewis and Elizabeth and Lydia, hello. Good morning. Morning, Jen. Morning. Welcome. I was looking looking for you earlier, and I thought you probably wouldn't be able to be here, but I see that you are, and praise God for that. Are there any comments uh, by anyone before we close today? Again, I said uh, I'll put online the, the notes in which is that nice little chart taken from Thomas Constable's commentary. And uh, also, if you can get it, you should order, you can order a used copy online uh, of Newell's, Newell's, N-E-W-E-L-L, Newell's Commentary on Romans, order the, only the first edition, not the second, where you'll see a similar table, but there are some good commentaries that outline Romans chapter 5 very, very well. So I thought you'd be benefited a lot by that chart. Showing the how the uh, the doctrine of federal headship works in the mind of God, and that determines everything. The mind of God determines everything, does it not? Praise God. Any comments before we uh, close in prayer today? Well, I would like to make a comment, and that is, you know, it's clear, clearer and clearer the reason that Satan wants to extinguish the knowledge of Genesis. Yes. Because as, as you've been pointing out in this series of lessons, once you um, crumble the foundation, all of the truth of scripture falls. Yes, indeed. And yet in the seminaries that train up the pastors and teachers and um, you know those who influence the Christian community, they're compromising. They want to compromise so that they're accepted in the world. But the world is Satan's realm. And he does not want anyone to believe in the literal truth of Genesis. Yes. In the beginning, yeah. God yeah. created. Very, very true. That's That's been true down through history. Those that even ex might ex be willing to accept the Bible as some kind of a religious book, they don't want to take it literally necessarily. <laughs> they interpret it according to their own desires, right? But this, when, you ex when you believe that the scripture is God's revealed truth, mm -hmm. there's just this exquisite design that weaves through the whole of scripture, and it's all consistent. And as you were pointing out, it may seem complex, and to those who are not, who have not come to God by grace through faith, it, it seems complex and confusing. But once you believe what God has written through the instrument of people, there's this exquisite design which you can never exhaust. Mm -hmm. Right, um, right. And, and I'd like to make another point. Uh, many today name the name of Christ and they claim to be followers of the Lord. What they mean is that they're trying to become more like Jesus was in his earthly ministry. But you see, Paul isn't writing about that anywhere. Where does Paul ever write about that, in fact? I would say he never does. But he does write about Christ's work on Calvary's cross, right? That act of righteousness is what's imputed to us. And that gives us liberty and freedom from the bondage of sin and death in, in so many ways, right? Not in every way yet, because these bodies still will perish if they're not caught up into heaven's glory first, right? And transformed. But um, uh, in every other way, I mean, we, we have Christ dwelling within us. We have his life. We have liberty uh, in the Lord and freedom from that bondage. We're no longer slaves to sin as the unsaved are. And uh, in fact, we, uh, Paul says, uh, if we receive the abundance of grace, then we'll reign in life through Jesus Christ. Lisa? 
I have a comment, Jim, um, based on what you both were, were just saying. Um, as I was listening to Anne uh, read her verse uh, at the very end there, um, it says in verse 20, uh, moreover, the, the law entered that the offense might abound. Um, <laughs> the light bulb kind of went on for me right there as she was reading. And I'll say it again. Moreover, the law entered. Mm. Why? That the offense might abound. And I was thinking about the fact that in the, in the traditional church, um, the law is put forth for us to obey it. Exactly. But here, this is clearly saying something different. It is saying something very you different. Know? And it's it's amazing how we really do have to believe the words on the page. We have to, to understand that the law was a schoolmaster to bring to Christ. Well, I wrote in the notes, which you can see when I get them online, regarding that point, that's the strongest statement anywhere as to why the law was given. <laughs> and Paul, Paul, go ahead. Sorry for interrupting. Taught something different by men or yeah. by, by others that we respect and hold in high regard because they went to a Bible college or to a mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. So the deception begins right there. Oh, yes, it does. Legalism is a terrible thing, but um, I wanted to just say one more thing. Um, but now it slipped my mind. <laughs> Hi, Jim. Go ahead, Lewis. I'd like to make a comment, which actually is sort of piggybacking on what Patty just said in terms of uh, the Satan's influence. You know, and this is a Christmas season, and uh, so we we heard the Christmas carol, Christmas keynote, you know, in the past few weeks, and but the problem is, you know, when you listen to people talking, you know, singing about the uh, the manger scene and the angels singing, you know, on the surface, those are, you know, perfectly fine. But if you really think about it, there's something's wrong with the message they try to send out. And if we just read Colossians, you know, 2, 6, 16, you know, Mm -hmm. It's about let no man therefore judge you in me or drink or in respect to a holiday or new moon or Sabbath day, right? Mm -hmm. Then we know Christian, uh, the Christmas very well, you know, throughout the society. But have we ever heard about any song like commonly known talking about the crucifixion or ascension mm -hmm. or right now Christ is in heavenly places, you know, intercept for us, like nothing. So they mm. purposely corner made this such a significant holiday and made Jesus like a little baby in the manger. Then we adore him. That's not Jesus is today. But if you ask people on the street, that's that they will tell you. They're talking about the peace on earth. There was any peace on earth like ever? <laughs> no. Unless we are reconciled with God, there was no peace but people just don't know that. They mistaken the ambient of the beautiful song, you know, and the candlelight as a piece. That's not peace. That's a deception to let you away from the true meaning of gospel's teaching. And people just are subtle with this, you know, supposed peace ambient. And they thought that was peace. Mm -hmm. Then singing, praising about the baby Jesus. This is really sad. I, I talk about this with Elizabeth and girls. I said, this is not what you said. You know, Christmas is about, mm -hmm. right? It's more well, than just Christmas. You know, we should think about Christ, you know, yeah. in heavenly places. What today as a believer, we're given this privilege, given this grace, given this mercy. Not just, you know, singing the Christmas song and just think about that and feel good about it. <laughs> There's nothing good about that. Well, yes, but lest you mis be misunderstood, uh, which is so easily <laughs> happened. Um, what Christmas really is, in my mind, is a celebration of, and yet the world doesn't understand this, and world religion doesn't understand this, even if it's called Christian. You're right. Uh, but uh, what it really is, 
in the calendar is the celebration of the incarnation. <laughs> okay, not of the birth of the Lord, but that's another subject as to how the Lord was actually born on September whatever instead of December, and the calendar was changed uh, in the early days of uh, Christianity, especially in Rome, uh, to be compatible with the pagan religions of the day that, that also worshipped something on December 25th, and it was not uh, what we think, <clears throat> okay? <laughs> so very interesting. Uh, so I, I believe one can celebrate Christmas with the right uh, understanding, right, Lewis? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm not against. I'm just feel that the priority has been shifted. Attention has been hijacked. Right. And it, it's that can lead uh, a lot of questions, you know, uh, down the the wrong path, you know. Right. Right. Okay. Um, I think it was like. Two years ago, uh, our Christmas message focused in on this, maybe three three years ago, uh, on that very subject. Some of you were here and might remember that. Um, okay, so praise God, we have his truth and we know whom we worship and, and serve and we know what has been accomplished for our redemption. What a glorious, glorious thing it is, isn't it? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for gathering us today. And uh, thank you for each one uh, who's here today or will hear later through these various technologies that are available. And uh, I just thank you, Father, for blessing us so greatly by the abundance of your grace that uh, you would intersect with our lives as you have and uh, have brought so many into the fold under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ and entirely on the basis of our our faith for we are saved by grace through faith and that is not of ourselves but as a gift that no one may boast so father I thank you so much for that and praise your name and may your grace abound and may we be lights and bold to share that truth wherever you take us until you catch us up into heaven's glory in due time. And we would thank you, Father, in Christ's name, and, and amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.